thankful for our time together on a Sunday morning to study God's Word, to rally together in corporate praise for our good God. Uh, pray that you're encouraged, challenged this morning as we grow in steadfastness of abiding in our Lord, making much of His name, the lost world that surrounds us. I'm excited about our time in God's Word this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. Uh, if you're new to Scripture, you'll find the letter of 1 John towards the very back of your Bible just after Second Peter, and just before Jude and Revelation. So right towards the very end, I'm excited today to preach 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Uh, and as you turn there, I just want to read to you Psalm 145.3, which says, Great is the Lord, and most worthy to be praised. His greatness no one can fathom. Amen? Look with me at our passage today in its entirety. God moves upon us in His truth, power of the Holy Spirit. First um, John chapter 2, 15 through 17 says this: "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So far, John has majored in his letter on what is called indicative statements. They are statements of fact. He's he's been pressing for certainty. He wants his hearers, he wants the blood-bought family of God to be certain in who they are in Christ amidst the deception, amidst the false teaching. But today we see him shift to a strong imperative statement, he, a command to obey. And so listen to his directness as we get started here in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John loves his blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ to firmly warn them of the fleshly temptation to love the world. And so he tells them, do not love the world or the things of the world. And his words here are direct and they're firm. And so I'm asking us this morning, church, to lean in and to be sure we hear what God has for us with the weight and the seriousness it deserves. John is so serious, he goes so far to say, the person who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in them. This is not a small statement. Why? Because the love of the Father is absolutely the most important thing in this life and the next. There is nothing that compares. Nothing is more important than our standing with God. Nothing. And if that's what's on the line, if that's what is being shown, if we have love for the world, that we do not have the love of the Father, then we must slow to take this serious, to see it for what it is. If love for the world and the things of the world are a direct testimony to whether or not the love of God is in us, we better be sure to tune in to the reality of where our love and our devotion is. To do this, let's begin to break into what John is saying here and and also what he's not saying. Upon a quick read, one could be confounded that John is saying here seems to be 
in direct opposition to what Jesus said in a couple of places. For example, very famous passage, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says that God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die in their place. So if God loves the world, then why are we told we can't love the world and still belong to God? To answer this, we must recognize that the word world has many different applications and or emphasis in Holy Scripture in the different contexts by which we find them. And that's the case here between these two passages. The Greek word used for world is cosmos. And it is essential that we are rightly understanding what meaning of cosmos is being applied in the different uses in Scripture. This can be important because the wrong application of the word cosmos can lead to great misunderstanding of who God is and how He works in the world. Thankfully, Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. That's our great tool. Not our tradition, not our preferences, but Scripture, interpreting Scripture to lead us to what is being said in the different contexts we find it in. Let me just give you a quick bullet point list of how we see cosmos used in a number of different ways in Scripture. We see cosmos or world used to describe the universe as a whole, like in Acts 17.24. We see it used to describe planet Earth like in John 1.9, John 13.1, Ephesians 1.4. We see it used to describe the whole human race, everybody, like in Romans 3.19. We see it used to describe enslaved humanity that's not including believers, like in John 15.18 and Romans 3.6. We see it used to describe the lost and the sinful world system that's against God like in John 12, 31. And cosmos is used to describe God's chosen ones who are throughout the world as they are from, as Scripture says, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a worldwide people, His elect. We see that in many places. John 1, 29, 3, 16, 17, 6, 33, John 12, 47, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and on and on. And so this, the last one, is the way Jesus uses the word world in John 3.16. Contrary to many people's popular belief, Jesus is highlighting God's love for His chosen people who are of every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world. We know this is the case because of the context of the passage and because of Toto Scriptura, meaning Scripture interpreting Scripture. To not contradict itself, Jesus is wrapping up a very important dialogue in John 3 with a very high-ranking Pharisee named Nicodemus. The popular Jewish belief in that time was that salvation was only for the Jews. The belief of many was that the Messiah was coming just for them. The thought that God's love or saving work would also be for a Gentile was unheard of for the Jews. And so the Jews were concerned. Especially the Pharisee who, who often shared their disgust and confusion for why Jesus would even spend time with Gentile sinners. So in John 3.16, world doesn't mean the entire human race. It means a worldwide people consisting of more than Jews. Jesus 
that God's love was for his people, a worldwide people, so much so that his one and only son would come. And all who are believing into him will not perish but have eternal life. It's a statement of fact more than it's an invitation as we often kind of manipulate that verse to be used. Now, the way the word cosmos or world is used by John in our text today is different than the way Jesus uses it in John 3.16, which is why the two statements don't contradict. John is not saying, track with me, that we are to not love the chosen people of God that belong to every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? When that would contradict so much of Scripture. The rest of even John's letter that is one of the high points in Holy Scripture about loving one another, the people of God. Christians are commanded to love each other selflessly for the glory of God. No, the way John is using the word cosmos here is to mean the lost and sinful world system. Like we saw Jesus use it in John 12, 31 and 32 when he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The world, the word world here means the fallen sinful system that is opposed to God, that is worthy and due judgment. It is reference to cultures and lifestyles and ways of thought and worldviews and priorities and practices that totally neglect or dishonor God. We know that this is what John means because in its context, again, he adds clarity in verse 17. We'll get to this later, but I'll read it now. 1 John 2, 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever abides, I'm sorry, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Clearly, he's not talking about the entire world because we see two distinct realities here. It's not an all-inclusive statement. The word, the, the lost world whose sinful ways will pass away and those who belong to Christ and do the will of God who will abide forever. See the difference? John is saying, do not love the practices, the systems, the ideologies of this sinful world that dishonor God. The world that we are not to be in love with is described well by Paul in Romans 1, 28-32, when he says they refused to acknowledge God. And so he abandoned them to their evil minds to let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin and greed and hate and envy and murder and fighting and deception and malicious behavior and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They're forever inventing new ways of sinning and are disobedient to their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, and are heartless and unforgiving. They're fully aware of God's death penalty for those who do these things, and yet they go right ahead and do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Why should we not be in love with these ways of the world? Again, first incentive John gives is big. It's really big. He says in the last part of verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
In other words, the reason you cannot love the world, a world that stands against God and love God at the same time, is that it's literally impossible. So to think it is possible is the deception John is trying to warn the beloved of. Why is it impossible to love the lost world and its ways and God at the same time? Because they stand against each other. You can only be devoted to one or the other. This is similar to Jesus' famous words in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Love for the world means you do not love God. And true love for God means you will not love the ways of the world. Another way to think about this is a man who truly loves his wife, truly loves her, doesn't just say he loves her, but he truly loves her, does not enjoy the love, it's not, does not enjoy or love the company of another, whether it be physical or virtual. Her sinful pursuit of him reveals her despise and contempt for his wife and the holy covenant of marriage. If he truly loves her, he will not stand for this. If he truly loves his wife, he will not stand for this. Cannot be on both sides of that fence. You either truly love her and reject the one who brings contempt to her, or you don't. Love for the world means you do not love God. And true love for God means you will not love the world. So quickly, so we don't take this too far, what is John not saying here, according to the rest of Scripture? He is not saying that we are to hate or not love other people. Others who are created in the image of God. We know this because Christ himself commanded us, That we are to love our enemies, right? And pray for those who persecute us. Matthew 5.44 In other words, love people who are lost in the world and hate God. Why are they our enemies? Because they come with contempt. They come with hate. They try to hurt us. They stand against what we stand for most. We are commanded to show them love. The love of God. Church, to be clear, we are to love the lost. We are to love those who are wicked. We are to pray for them. We are to do good to them. We are to love our enemies in such a way that we selflessly point them to Jesus. This is different than having an affection or a buy-in to what the world does and the ways by which they stand against God. Now the world will say you can't love us without loving what we stand for. But that is a lie. That is the deception of the enemy, the deception and manipulation of the lost world that we should not buy into. We who belong to Christ honor Christ. It's back to what Steve taught on Wednesday. The truth belongs to God. They don't get to redefine what is truth. 
John is not the only one to press this point. James says it so clearly in James 4, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The word friendship here is the Greek noun, phileia. Its verb form is phileo. It's used to often communicate love. It's used to speak of the Father's love for the Son in places like John 5.20. That word's used to to speak of God's love for His redeemed people in places like John 16, 24. We are not to have that kind of affectionate relationship and bond with the world. If we do, then we side with them against God. So there is a way to selflessly love our enemies, to serve them, to pray for them, but not to belong to them. Not to participate with them. Not to endorse them. Maybe the best place we see the depth of friendship explained is Jesus' words in John 15, 13-14. Greater love is none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This kind of friendship involves great sacrifice and faithfulness. There's a faithfulness to that relationship. When James says friendship with the world, he's not saying just buddies. Okay? Doesn't mean you can't have friends that are lost. He's describing a deep affection, a belonging for the worldly sinful system that opposes God. Friendship with the world doesn't mean befriending people who are lost in sin and loving them in the name of Jesus. It means a love and faithfulness to the world's sinful system, values, impulses, and attractions. We cannot have that. It's the difference between your worldly friends feeling totally comfortable with you without the clear reality that there is something very different and that you are completely committed to Jesus and they are complete... uh, completely committed to satisfying their fleshly desires and to worldly priorities. And there's a big difference. If there is no real tension in this relationship due to the opposite loyalty that you hold, then it probably means you're crossing over the line of friendship with the world in a way that you should not. What this also means is that unless the that person is saved by God, that tension with that person is not going to go away. It is a marker that you are not crossing over into loving the ways of the world. James and John have a united warning that God wants us to hear. Your faith will produce works and priorities that will be the opposite of love and faithfulness to the world's sinful system, values, impulses, and attractions. It will show itself in a way that while we love those who hate us and, stand, and those who stand against God, we do not participate in the system or ideas or priorities that dishonor God. And so there will be a tension there. Paul also speaks to this reality in his letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
Amen? Church, unrighteousness is the opposite of righteousness. God is righteous. Sin and fleshly standards of this world are unrighteous. So an embrace of the unrighteousness of the world is an, is an embrace of the lost and condemned world. To do this is to stand against God and what is God honoring. I want you to see with me that John, James, and Paul are all saying the truly saved will not love the world and its ways. The truly saved cannot be enemies of God, for they are His beloved forever. Church, we were His enemies. We were against Him, but we have been saved by a faith and a trust in Jesus alone that honors Him now with our lives, our actions, and our priorities. We've been born again. John's emphasis in our passage is that those who do embrace the world and its ways prove to not have that new birth, that saving faith in God, but instead prove to be at enmity with Him. John, 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's get real practical for a moment. As a true Christian, you can love and serve and testify to the idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, the greedy person, the drunkard. But you cannot affirm them, endorse them, count them as acceptable and good in what they do, for it is not. Why? Because these things are against God, and you love God. And you live to honor God above all else. These things are unrighteous and worthy of God's eternal wrath. To embrace or endorse them in this way is to make friendship with the world, and it's lostness in a way that you cannot if you stand with God in what is righteous and God-honoring. Those who claim Christ but also participate with, join, endorse the sinful ways of the depraved or ultimately trusting their own fleshly logic or humanistic ideologies or feelings and not God. They're redefining what true love is and what is right and what is good. Therefore, they do not love God. Or as John says, the love of the Father is not in them. How many people do you know, or maybe you are even guilty of claiming Jesus as Lord, but then hold up as good and valuable the very things that stand against Him and His glory? These are the very sins that Christ died for us to be washed of. The very practices that made us guilty and deserving of His eternal wrath that in Christ alone are forgiven. Church, do not be deceived. There is a false church, and there are fake Christians who will claim that it is okay. They'll they'll go so far and even say it's good, that there's a good in it. Church, do not be deceived. The true church, those with true saving faith in Jesus, those who are reborn, to see and savor Jesus and serve Him all of their remaining days 
do not call the things that God calls sin good or acceptable. We do not endorse these things or practice them. It doesn't matter how close we are to the person who's practicing them. Those with true saving faith who love God do not call sexual immorality good or acceptable. No matter how much you love the other person, the person you're close to is with. It is not righteous. So we do not celebrate people's intimate engagement outside of marriage ever. Those with true saving faith who love God do not call the practice of homosexuality good or acceptable. No matter how close you are to the person who seems to finally be finding a better way in life. For it is not righteous and it does not honor God. So we do not embrace or celebrate people's practice of it, ever. The practice of stealing is not good or acceptable. It it is not righteous, so we do not justify worldly business practices or participate in taking anything that's not ours, ever. The murder of a conceived child in the womb is not good and acceptable. It is not righteous. So we do not advocate for a humanistic view that holds higher a woman's right to choose to then abort her child over the life of the child. Ever. If you are guilty of calling these things good and acceptable, if you're guilty of approving of or embracing such things, you need to confess your sin and repent, which means turning to a new practice, a new conviction, a new way of interacting in light of the gospel, in light of your devotion to God and His righteousness. Why? Because your true saving faith in Jesus will produce a good God-honoring work and words that honor God and will look very different than the system's ways of thinking and working, no matter how hard they come at you for so. If you do not confess this as sin and repent of this kind of friendship with the world, then in James' words, you prove yourself an enemy of God. And in John's words, you prove that the love of the Father is not in you. I don't have to add weight to that this morning. That's God's word. You have an issue with that this morning. You don't have an issue with me. You have an issue with the clarity of God's holy word. Now you might say, so what does that mean for my relationships with my family, with my friends that are endorsing and practicing these things? What does it mean for my political voting, my positions in life, and society? What does it mean for the way I raise my kids? It means righteous reformation and redemption. It means sanctification and changes in these areas of life so that you are honoring God. If you are of true faith in God and devoted to God and accountable to God, then you will honor God no matter the cost. Your belonging to Him and serving Him is not a matter of convenience. Now you might say, but that means people I love could turn on me. It could change our relationship. I would say the moment you trusted your life to Jesus was the moment that all of that began to radically change. You, you, you changed teams. 
And it was not a minor change. It was a life-changing shift that affects every area of your life. Church, I would go so far to say that being persecuted and hated by those entrenched in the sinful ideologies and priorities of the world is a good thing. It's a good sign. Do not forget, Jesus' words Himself, again, I, I don't have to build on it with my own words. John 15, 18-20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated Me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now I understand the temptation to be loved by the world is very real. And therein lies the beauty and the gift of this passage for us this morning. In my 20 plus years of my pastoral career, I've seen many people who once claimed love and devotion to Jesus prove to not have the love of the Father in them because they valued being loved by the world more. And when that was tested enough, they showed their true colors. They proved to be false disciples who because they wanted to be loved and not hated by those in the world, turned. In this is a potent sin that can be very hard to shake, but we must shake it. We must put it off. And that is the sin of the fear of man. The fear of man is, a, is man's deep-seated sinful desire to long for the approval, the applause, the acceptance, the compliments and affection of other people rather than from God. You know, you know what it is. I don't got to go too deep into this one. This is that thing that stops you from doing the right thing even with each other. From having conversations that are tough. From loving each other as we really should. We cannot aim to please others because if we belong to Christ, we will aim to please and honor God above all else. Church, put it to the test. 2 Timothy 2.4 No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That for you, Christian, is Jesus. Here's what we have to understand. If we love God and are devoted to God, we will be hated by the world. It is unavoidable. It is the it is only the sinful fear of man that wants to shake this and try to find a different way. I don't want that reputation on my business, and so we're just not going to go there. But your business and your participation in that business belongs to the glory of God. So why do you get separated? See, do you have a right view of what it means even to be a Christian? But it all belongs to Him. Being hated by the world is not something we, the church, should avoid or put away or hide under a rock. No, you must understand what the Bible teaches us, that hatred of the world is another marker that we actually belong to Jesus. It is good news to be hated by the world because it is a sign that you're no longer of the world. Did you catch what Jesus said in John 15, 19? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
Isn't there a real, real fine line when you're trying to really love someone, the love of God, be a light of the gospel to them, and there's not tension in that relationship? Like, they really love you. There should, there, there should be a concern there, church. What are we not saying in that relationship that is bringing them to the edge of the reality by which is most important for them to do business with? And I'm not saying you run into the next conversation with nuclear weapons and just blow it all up. Okay? Look, there needs to be a prayerful, mindful journey of this. Let us, heed the, let us heed the words of our Lord in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I want to be part of that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And five minutes ago, you're like, Pastor, getting crazy about what he's trying to bring us to. (laughs) The Lord himself just said we are to rejoice and be glad in it. Church, Jesus says that we are blessed to be persecuted by the world for our allegiance to Jesus and obedience to his word. Why are we blessed? Because it means we have God. That's why we're blessed. Not, not because the bleeding feels good or the loss of the income feels good or the, or, or the, the, the praying through the night because they're, they're breaking down my door feels good. No, it's because I have God. That's the blessing. Never forget that God is the prize of all prizes. Never make that a secondary or, or, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. But what about this? No, no, no. You don't ever move past that. You have God in Christ. There's no greater satisfaction. There's no better life. No higher high than know and be known by the Holy God. Is that where you are grounded? And it's why John says it the way he does. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you get it, what it means to have God, then that statement is huge for you. Not having the love of the Father is the worst thing we could ever know. And so I ask you, do you love God and know his love? If so, then you do not love the world and the things of the world. Christian, what business do you need to do today? What confession and repentance needs to happen to do real business with us today? Let me say, that conviction can be hard to navigate. But just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do what honors God. And as you consider some changes that you need to make in order to rightly be devoted to God, I just want to say, don't do that alone. One of the great purposes and blessings of the church in our life in Christ together. Lean on your group leaders. Lean on your elders. Lean on your mature brothers and sisters in Christ to help you navigate areas of needed change and repentance so that you can honor God 
in your allegiances and practices. I pray you do not let the conviction of the Holy Spirit that is working in you in this moment go to waste. Go to work, Christian. Make the most of these days that God gives you under the sun by His grace and for His glory. Amen? Look with me at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Christians, you have a clear understanding of what is of the world and what is of God. Do you have a clear understanding for how your flesh is at war with the Holy Spirit day by day? When clarifying what the ways and priorities of the world are, John speaks of, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Let's deal with those first, and then we'll go to pride of life. The Greek word here for desire is the same word used for lust. It's the word epithumia. Epithumia is an over-desire. An excessive desire. It's a sinful desire. All throughout the New Testament, this word pops up when dealing with the core of one's heart. Epithumia is a desire for anything in this world, good or bad, but your desire for it is more than for God, which is what makes it evil. John Calvin clearly said, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. So often the object of our desires is good. It's good stuff. It's great people. But the evil, the the sin, lies in the lordship of the desire for that good thing. For example, I'm a parent, but it is very possible to turn my kids into idols that I would have an over-desire. I'm a pastor. It's very possible to turn my ministry into an idol. If you're a fan of a team, it is possible to turn your following or cheering into idolatry, into an over-desire. If you love a certain kind of food or drink, it is possible to turn your eating or your drinking into idolatry. If you love our country, it is possible to turn your patriotism into an idol. If you love life, it is possible to turn safety into an idol. All of these things are considered good things. Nothing I just listed is bad. Good things that you and I can be all too easily guilty of inflating to function as our source of identity, our source of hope, our source of peace, our source of satisfaction. In 2 Timothy 3.4, Paul says, Many will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Church, we must be mindful of how our fleshly desires lead us to betray our devotion and love to God. 
Paul warns well in Galatians 5, 16 through 17, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Look with me at the other emphasis John gives in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Do you know that any form of pride is not from the Father, but is from the world? I want you to think about how acceptable the word pride is in our culture. Pride is an enemy of God. To be proud. It is evil. Why? Because pride causes man to believe he is worthy of worship and praise. But the Bible clearly tells us that man is not worthy of worship and praise. I want you to see pride for what it is. I want to encourage you to remove it from your thinking, your words, your practices. I want you to see it as a secular thing and not a God-honoring thing. Please understand the weight of it. Pride is demonic. It, why? It is the essence of the fallen angel who in pride became a demon. Pride was the chosen weapon of Satan in mankind's demise from day one. Pride is the core of mankind's folly. It is in pride that caused Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in their desire to be like God. Ever since Eden, pride has been the problem. And here's the problem. For most of us, we don't understand the magnitude of the problem of pride. We play light with it. We make a bed for it in our words, in our, in our homes. Why? How how is that possible? How have we embraced this word to be so normal? And I think the reason is because Satan went in the marketing business. To repackage pride as a positive self-esteem. And if you go to your local library or bookstore, you will see there's more books written on self-help and self-esteem than anything, any other category. Why? Because it's a potent weapon of the enemy. It's a great deception. And so as a result, we believe self-esteem is a good thing to grow in, to work on, to read about, to practice, to cling to. Please see that esteem in oneself, pride in oneself, is the very sin that causes us to reject God and heap praise on man. The world says you need to have self-esteem. And the biblical answer to that is no, you don't. You don't need that. You need to have your esteem in Christ. Your identity in Christ. Your joy in Christ. We are to live for God's glory and praise, not our own. But what about self-help? And then there's the problem. See the lie in that? We can't help ourselves. 
We need Jesus alone. We don't need self-help, self-esteem, self-actualization. These are not the things we're desperate for. It is God we're desperate for. It is Christ. It is grace. It is the gospel. It's His glory. We live in a demonically inspired culture that wants you and I to be the center of the universe. That's the objective. That's what was pitched to Adam and Eve in the beginning. And we're still playing to that tune. The deception is to make our glory the ultimate goal of our existence. To think that everyone should realize how amazing we are. And you're like, no, no, that's not me. But, but do you get caught up in it? Do you get caught up in wanting some of that praise? Just, just, just a little. I've been working hard. Just a little. Again, if you feel like I'm being too firm... Listen to God's Word. Proverbs 6, 16, and 17. God's Word. God's big words. A proud look is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. God promises to destroy the house of the proud. You don't need legacy that points to you. You need legacy that points to Jesus. Parent, you're struggling with what you're accomplishing, what you're providing. They don't need you to be a champion of this life. They need you to be a champion of Jesus. Proverbs 21.4 A haughty look, a proud heart, or sin. God opposes the proud. Think about that. He opposes the proud, and yet how normal is pride talk in our society? It's the thing that fills most of the sporting shirts in our culture, is it not? Pick your team and put the word pride after it. Is that not the marketing of most sporting schools, teams? Lion pride, anteater pride. Is it not a well-bought, embraced, and packaged mantra of our country? Is it not a place that we struggle to live in with our kids? I want you to see the deception of what we're buying into. To be proud is to fight God. For what belongs to him. The Bible also says that God gives grace to the humble. Church, we don't need pride, we need grace. Our prayer needs to be God, I need help. I need a savior. I don't need self esteem. I need identity in Christ. I don't need to self actualize. I need to worship you. I want to live for your glory. I need to get out of myself. I'm addicted to myself. I think about myself. If I'm honest in my sin, I love myself. And all that is mine. Church, we need to understand our pride because our pride leads us away from God and His good truths. It is a huge trap door 
into deception, deep deception and lostness. I mean, a maze for the mind and the heart that is so wicked. Why? Because in your pride, you don't think you need Jesus anymore. You stop seeing him as the life source. You start to think, I can do it on my own. I just need to figure out a different way to do it. I need to repackage the, the, the game pieces, and then it will all finally work. How often do we fall into this trap of losing sight of God, and so we stop thanking Him for the little things and for the big things? How often do you thank Him for everything that you have and all the things you can do? One of the biggest ways I believe we combat pride from infecting our hearts is to remain always thankful to God. I don't have time to show you the gigantic list of scriptures that call us to thankfulness to God. And there's a reason why. And so instead of saying to your son and daughter, in case you're still going, how do I not be proud of my kids? Instead of saying that you're proud of them in a way that points them to the accomplishments of themselves, say that you're thankful for God's work and will in them. You're thankful to see them pursue God and to work hard, be good stewards of this area of life or this part of life, and they're aimed to honor Him in what they do. See the difference? Pride talk says, you did it! Praise to you! Thankfulness to God says God is at work in and through you. You remain desperate for Him in it all. He is the one deserving of our praise and our focus. Join me, son. Join me, daughter, in praising God. The longer we go without thanking Him, the more we think it's us. 1 Corinthians 4.7 What do you have that you did not receive? If you then receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you see? See, I'm proud of what I've done or proud of what you've done is to ditch that whole concept. The whole reality, not concept, of, of it belonging to the Lord. All boasting belongs to God. Everything we accomplish in this life is ultimately the result of His grace and work in and through His creation. So hear John's words again in verse 16. And I want to point out one more thing. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, that over-desire, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. He highlights the, the sources of our temptation to over-desire. And the first thing I want us to see real quickly about this angle is these temptations reveal a common pattern in how Satan works. Think about me with how Satan came at Adam and Eve. In the garden, he tempted their flesh. Oh, that fruit, that fruit would be good to taste, wouldn't it? Mm. He tempted their eyes. It was pleasing to the eye. And he tempted their pride of life. It would make them as smart as God. Hear this today, church. You and I are going to be continually tempted in all three of these ways. The desires of our physical body, our eyes, and our pride. We must be diligent to understand the trapping of them. So first, the lust of the flesh, the physical yearnings and desires. Is physical pleasure sin? No. 
God made our bodies to enjoy things, right? That's why food tastes good. Good food, bad food, bad. Good food tastes good. That's why kissing a loved one is enjoyable. That's why hugging your kids is joy. Because God made our bodies to enjoy certain things. That pleasure is not bad. But when you make all your decisions solely based out of the desires of your physical body, you will end up being a glutton who eats way too much food, who drinks too much alcohol, a drug addict, a person who's sexually addicted and a pervert, a a person who is addicted to euphoric highs and experiences and competition and fast things, and you're just chasing a hamster. You're like a hamster on a wheel. In this lifestyle, you end up as one who just lives high to high, experience to experience, euphoria to euphoria. If we had time, we'd bring you up and just have you tell your stories of the old man and just the lostness of it, the death of it, the, the demise of it. But what it reveals is that I'm not satisfied in God alone. What about the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes? We see a lot of things in this life. Do you realize John's highlighting the gravity of this temptation, the lust of the eyes, way before modern marketing, advertising, movies, media, internet? The lust of your eyes, desire to have more, is to have something that's not yours. Do you lust after it? To worship things with your mind and your heart. And so I ask you, Christian, how are you allowing your eyes to be constantly tempted to lust after others or other stuff? you got to do business with that. And then the pride of life, the over-desire to be something in this life, to be looked at by other men and women as arrived, as someone who has nice things, who's done a good job. This has been a struggle for my life. I grew up in Irvine, very, very expensive, high-end city. Named the safest city in America many years. My family, though, was financially tight growing up. One income family. It was very odd in Irvine to make a way. Both parents needed to work. So we had old cars. We had an unfinished house. We rarely had new stuff. To make things worse, the long-standing Kirstein family legacy was one of pursuit of hard work and success and enjoying nice things. It was all around us. This meant that my brother and I have had a lifelong struggle with this. We've had to identify the sinful parts of the pursuit for this identity, this stuff, and to repent from it, to honor the Lord and be satisfied in Him instead. And so like us, are you aware of your struggles in these areas? John is loving us well to reveal the ways of the world so that we would not fall into their alluring trap, but to turn from them unto God. As we wrap up, look at verse 17 with me. He says, And the world's passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John Newton once penned these words, Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All is boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know.
Church John takes his warning further. It says, the world's passing away along with its desires. And this is a vital truth we must never lose sight of. Why? Because if we see it for what it is, we'll avoid it. We won't buy into it. We won't invest in it. We won't chase it. A wise person does not invest in a company that is sure to go bankrupt. A sober person doesn't build a house on a sinkhole. A reasonable person doesn't lay up treasures where moth and rust destroy them, where thieves break in and steal. John is saying, be certain of this fact. The world and its desires are passing away. To set your heart on the world is to ask for a heartache and eternal misery in the end. Not only is the world passing away, but if you share the desires of the world, you will pass away too. You will not only lose your precious treasure and status, you'll lose your life to chase after the idols of the heart. But there's good news. John says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father, as it says in verse 15, but doing the will of the Father, as it says here in verse 17, church. This connection is solidified again and again in Scripture. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John will say later in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of God in verse 17 are not really separate things. They're inseparable. If you love God, you will obey His commands. And you will do His holy will. The law of the Lord, the will of God is, church, it's not bad. Any party that wants to call it bad, call it hard, not desire it, is the part of your flesh that's at work. Those who are in Christ who love God, love His law, love His will. The Old Testament authors and leaders would say it often, how much they love the law of the Lord. Delight in it. Meditate on it day and night. We'll, we will not delight in it. Meditate on it. Be devoted to it. If we don't have a true love, a deep love. It's empty talk to say, I love God, but not love what God loves. And so with all this said, let us consider, how does one who loves God interact with the lost world we live in? And I would just quickly give you three things to consider. We can revel in it, reject it, or redeem it. It's clear that we cannot love and live in the world the way the world does. Therefore, we cannot revel in it and also claim Jesus. That should be clear by now. In what ways are you guilty of participating in the sinful ways of the world? In what you talk about, in what you watch, in what you spend time with, in what you listen to. If this is you, repent. Let God's Word today lead you to a new path, new practices that honor the Lord. Now some Christians or churches sadly teach and practice a lifestyle that says just reject the world. Literally, turn your back on it. Abandon it. Let it burn. In this vein of thinking, many Christians essentially reject God's commission on their life. 
to be a faithful part of the church, to evangelize the lost, to make disciples of the saints. We don't get to pick these things as options. This is our Lord's commands on us. For these days he gives us. But in a pursuit of just saying, reject it, people are moving to the hills and essentially looking to stash out until Jesus comes. Put ourselves in a bubble. If you love God, then this cannot be. Because it rejects God's commission on your life. God has redeemed us and commissioned us to go into the world to fulfill His eternal purposes. God's call in our lives is to testify the gospel and make disciples unto the nations in a way that brings redemption for many whom God perfectly has chosen. We need to be among the lost in a biblical God-honoring way. We need to be in the world and not of it so that we can be God's vessel for the redemption of many. The church, we are to be about redemption. Is it hard? Yes. Will it cost us a lot? Yes. If we're reading Scripture, it will. Much more than most of us even know. But we do not hope in the temporary. We hope in the eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, we are called to do the will of God, and we who do the will of God will abide with God forever. This is truly good news. Christ has set us free from our enslavement to sin, and being bound to the desires of our flesh. In this, we now get to engage the lost world without being caught up in it. For it is passing away along with its desires. Young ones, youth, children, young adults, parents are loving you well to help you make war with all the ways the tempter of this world is trying to come at you to get to your mind, to get to your, to your heart, to get to your worldview. Know that they love you when they're being strict, when they're pointing you to the Lord, when they're trying to help you not take the easy path, but a path that brings great sanctification and the light of the gospel. Maybe go so far, kids, to thank them for this today. Parents, you won't have to tell me if that happens. I'll, I'll see it in the sky when your mind blows. <laughs> As we consider these truths today, may we well up with worship for God who saves us by His amazing grace. Amen? May we praise Him for His power and His work in us and through us. May we turn from the flesh and honor the Spirit. May we prove to truly love God and not the things that stand against God. That we abide, that we remain steadfast. Even in the persecution and the pain we go through, for God has us, and we will enjoy Him forevermore.
Pray with me. Lord, you are good. You are worthy to be praised. You have done a work, Lord, that we could not do. You have finished that work in Jesus' atonement on the cross, resurrection from the grave. Lord, for many here in this place and maybe around the world, I I just ask that you would awaken dead hearts today to bring true saving faith, not, not religion, but true saving faith. And then those whom you save, Lord, to bring a devotion to your word, to the church, a commitment to the things of God that you would be at work in us to sanctify, to help us fight the, the longings of the flesh, the temptations of the world, that we would abide in you now and forever. So Lord, in all the beautiful helps and points of just these few verses this morning, let us really meditate on these things. Um, go to you in prayer. Come, come to you in times of just stillness to, to really see them go to work in our lives. You are worthy to be praised. Worthy of our lives, of every part of it. Be worshipped now in this song and in our, in our going, our fellowship, and in the rest of this week. We love you. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.